the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network presents Vatican Insider with Joan Lewis. Each week, Joan brings you news from inside the Vatican and the church around the world, as well as interviews and answers to your questions. Now, here's the host of Vatican Insider, Joan Lewis. Welcome to Vatican Insider on this wonderful weekend when we celebrate Corpus Domini, also known as Corpus Christi, the Feast of the Body and Blood of Christ. I'll get to the news in a minute, but first want to tell you about my special guest in the interview segment, Jesuit Father Michael Maher. A native of Milwaukee, Father teaches history at Marquette University. He has a doctorate in history, two masters in theology, and an undergraduate degree in philosophy. If that's not enough, he's an expert on the Belgium-based Society of Bolandists, an association of scholars and historians who, since the early 17th century, have studied the cult of the saints in Christianity. They are named after the Flemish Jesuit Jean Bolandus. Father Maher talks about that work, how to separate fact from legend in a saint's life, the need for scholars to know ancient languages for this work, and what we can learn about societies from reading the lives of the saints. A riveting conversation about a unique institution. Part 2 next week. Now a brief overview of the week's top news stories. Of course, the main story was Pope Francis's three-hour abdominal surgery Wednesday for an incisional hernia. The surgery was announced after the Holy Father had presided at the weekly general audience in St. Peter's Square and as he was en route to Gemelli Hospital. He had been at Gemelli for a little over an hour a day earlier, a visit first reported by Italian media, but only several hours later confirmed by the Vatican without giving a reason for the visit. On Wednesday, his surgeon, Dr. Sergio Alfieri, detailed aspects of the operation itself and told reporters that the Pope was conscious, alert, and joking after surgery. Dr. Alfieri said the Pope should eventually be able to resume travel and his normal activities, but he should not lift heavy objects. As a standard precaution, the Pope will stay in the hospital five to seven days. Wednesday evening, the Holy See Press Office announced his audiences have been suspended until June 18th. Thursday morning, Press Office Director Matteo Bruni issued a statement saying, The medical staff following the post-operative progress of the pontiff reports that Pope Francis spent a quiet night, managing to rest for a long time. He's in good overall condition and is alert and breathing on his own. The routine follow-up exams are good, he will take the necessary post-operative rest for the whole day. The Pope has been made aware of the messages of closeness and affection that have arrived in the last few hours and has expressed his gratitude and at the same time asking for continued prayers. Thursday evening, Bruni said in a communique, His Holiness spent a day resting. The medical staff following the Pope's post-operative course reports that he has been fed a liquid diet. His hemodynamic and respiratory parameters are stable. The post-operative course appears regular. This afternoon, Solemnity of Corpus Christi, he received the Eucharist. Among the many messages of closeness, he was touched by the affection of the family of little Miguel Angel, whom he had baptized last March 31st during his visit to the Pediatric Oncology and Neurosurgery Ward of the hospital. 
The family had sent him a poster wishing him a speedy recovery, and the Pope personally thanked the mother with a brief phone call. A Friday early afternoon bulletin said Pope Francis rested during the night. The clinical picture is progressively improving, and the post-operative course is regular. After breakfast, he began to move and spent most of the morning in an armchair. This allowed him to read the newspapers and resume his initial work. Earlier this year, the Pope was admitted to Gemelli on March 29th for infectious bronchitis, and he was discharged after three days on April 1st, the vigil of Palm Sunday. Now, a few other stories from the week. Sunday, June 4th, Feast of the Holy Trinity. At the Angelus, Pope Francis said the sign of the cross, in which we name the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, reminds us how much God loves us. He said the simple gesture that we learn as children makes us feel God's embrace that with his love and tenderness envelops us completely. Following his reflections and the Marian prayer, the Holy Father remembered the victims of the train accident in India that took the lives of nearly 300 people, and he called for prayers for everyone suffering in wars, especially Ukraine. Monday, June 5th, the Pope addressed members of the Centesimus Annus Pro Pontefice Foundation on the occasion of the 30th anniversary, and he thanked them for their constant commitment to upholding the centrality of the person, the common good, solidarity and subsidiarity in their work and mission, and he reiterated his belief, no one is saved alone. The Pope later Monday addressed participants and organizers of the Green and Blue Festival that coincided with the June 5th World Environment Day. He underscored our shared responsibility to take concrete action to protect the planet. Wednesday, June 7th. In St. Peter's Square, in the presence of relics of St. Therese of Lisieux and those of her parents, canonized together in 2015, Pope Francis dedicated his catechesis on apostolic zeal to St. Therese. Recalling the beloved saint born 150 years ago, on January 2, 1873, he said he will dedicate an apostolic letter to her on the anniversary. He urged the faithful to imitate the little way of St. Therese by doing even the littlest of things like the Lord did with great love. Those are the news highlights of the week, but stay tuned for my conversation with Father Michael Marr, who tells us all about the Bolandist Society. EWTN helping people grow in their love and understanding of God. I'm a convert, and I was received into the church. I was a junior in college. Recently, I've sort of had a reconversion where I've come back into the faith, I think, stronger than I've ever had it. When I heard this this radio program today, it took me back to that moment, and it was so powerful for me that it really led me to where I am today. Why do we need to pray? Well, the Catholic faith is all about communion with God, and prayer is the form that our communion with God takes. If we're not praying, we're not in communion with God. But we can get in communion with God really quickly by prayer. It's the easiest, quickest, and only route to connect to our Creator, and that's what we're made for. That's why we need to pray. Welcome back to Vatican Insider. Here's Joan Lewis. 
Well, welcome to another edition of Vatican Insider with another special guest. In New York in May, at the Path to Peace Foundation Dinner, an event linked to the Holy See Mission to the UN, I met Irene de Saint-Cernin. She's the Director of Philanthropy of the Brussels-Belgium-based Société des Bolandistes, the Society of Bolandists. Well, my first question to her was, who are the Bolandists? And today, my special guest, who's a friend of Irini's, as well as of EWTN's Father Mitch Pacwa, will answer that question for all of us. And that guest is Father Michael Maher. We met recently at the Jesuit General in Rome, not long after his arrival for a month-long stay. So, Father Michael, welcome. Well, welcome, Joan, and I would like to thank you for hosting me uh, on your radio show. Uh, you have many fans in the United States who listen to you, and so it's a great privilege here. And to say a little bit about the Bollandists, I would Bollandists, like, thank you. The Bollandists, uh, the Bollandista Francais, uh, is that really the project of the Bollandists and the project of EWTN is very similar. It's telling people about our Catholic faith. And so I'd like to thank both you and EWTN and the Bollandists for their great work. So a little bit about how I got involved with the exactly. Bollandists is that uh, first and foremost, um, I'm, I'm a Jesuit priest, but I'm also a scholar. And so I very much respect scholarship and truth-telling. And that's what the Bollandists ultimately do, is they tell truths about the men and women of our faith. And they tell the story of the saints and sanctity. And that, of course, is a tremendous apostolate, especially in today when fake news tends to be prevalent. So telling the truth has always been uh, one of the great apostolates of the Catholic Church. And so I'm very glad to assist the Bollandists in their work in letting people know who they are. Well, where are you from and how did you link up with them? How did I link up with them? Well, I'm, I'm a Jesuit priest. I entered the Jesuits in the Roaring Seventies, so that would be a whole other interview of life in the Seventies in the Jesuits. Uh, I am a scholar. I, my area is early modern Europe. And uh, Irini Sassenen was looking for someone who perhaps could help tell the Bolandus story in the United States, uh, especially uh, for benefactors uh, who could support the work of the Bollandists and their important work of telling the truth about the saints. And so I'll tell you a little story about the Bollandists. When I was a, a novice, we were told that when you enter the Jesuits, you're not going to tell your superior what to do. I mean, you, you make yourself available by the means of the vow of obedience. But he said there were two exceptions. One, if you wanted to enter the Jesuits to go to the Asian missions, it was if that was the condition that you wanted to enter, that would be the, the, the you would go to the Asian missions, particularly Japan. And the second one is if you wanted to be a Bollandist. Oh my gosh! And I said, well, what's a Bollandist? You know what? What I mean, this is a you know because they're telling us <laughs> is in the novitiate, you know you you're entering and you're making a, a gift of yourself to the church and to the society of Jesus. and But it had this sort of like precondition. So I said, what's a Bollandist? And I remember my novice master got very serious and he said, oh, it's a very difficult life because you have to learn all these languages and all this research and do this. Of course, I had just graduated from high school, 
barely surviving Latin and the idea of going into scholarship, I thought, well, I'll cross that one off the list. Yeah. Well, God works in interesting ways. I went on and studied languages. I went on and got a doctorate. I went on and set, you know, spent a lot of my life in research. So I, I have a deep appreciation for people who do scholarly works in the church. Oh, I do too. I do. And of course, you can look around the time that I should be spending. We're in my library, my office, and I just think of the time exploring each one of those, you know, how many hundreds or thousand books do I have. But now the, the Bollandists go back like 400 and some years, right? Yes. <clears throat> they were originally uh, started by a father, Heinrich uh, Roswitha. And he wanted to start a what he called a Fasti Sanctorum. Fasti goes back to the idea of Ovid in the eighth, uh, the year eight A.D. That he writes this book about how the, the Roman gods and different religious uh, feasts occurred on a calendar. So a Fasti, a, a Roman Fasti, was a Roman calendar. So. This Jesuit then says, well, I want to do one for the saints. Now, we have to remember he's writing this around 1600 when there's a lot of accusations about authenticity. One of the core movements of the Reformation was who is retelling the story accurately? So both Protestants and Catholics accused themselves of going off the rails. So there was this great movement in scholarship before, during, and after the Council of Trent, which ended in 1563, to go back to the sources, because the two principal sources of authenticity uh, during the Reformation, and of course, historians now realize we don't just talk, when we talk about the Reformation, we're talking about a Catholic Reformation that was going on previous to Martin Luther, then what we would call the Protestant Reformation, and then we would talk about the Catholic Reformation, which is a distinct response to specific accusations of Protestantism. But so we talk about history in the age of Reformations, because it was a much more multifaceted reality. So everyone is going back to two primary sources. One is the Bible, and the other is the church fathers. And so the, the Bollandists grew up from this idea of going back and writing authentic texts about the church, church's saints, particularly the church fathers. And this work, your work, of these 400 years, everyone in between, has been described as the science of the saints. Well, very much, because, you know, the word science, when we think of science, we think of test tubes and men in white coats. But science is actually the logical application to data. For example, we talk about the science, theology being a science. And what makes it a science is that you proceed in an ordered, logical fashion, and that you apply... Uh, all sorts of critical theory like philology, codosology, all those ology words that yeah. you go to doctors <laughs> and yeah. but that you do it in a very, you just don't, you know, well, so-and-so said. You go back and you check the sources. Research, double, you know, triple double. checking, et cetera, oh, et cetera. It, you know, it, it, it's interesting. The, as the Bollandists have gone forward in time, 
it takes them longer and longer <laughs> to produce a book because the abilities of scholarship have become so demanding. Oh, sure. So it's a it's a it is a tremendous work for the church, but it's tremendously difficult as well. I when I had the advantage a month ago, I was visiting the Bollandists, and I just was so impressed with it. And I I want to say about the men who were working as Bollandists, they had two great loves. They had a love of the church, and they had a love of the intellectual life. Oh wow. And when you ride that twin-wheeled bicycle of love of the church and love of the intellectual life, you're going to go far. That that was my exact thought, you're going to go far. You know, I saw a wonderful, I think it was an hour-long show with Irini and Father Mm -hmm. Mitch, uh, exactly about what we're talking about, the Bollandists. And um, she said, saints are the heroes we need, morally worthy people. And maybe you could just kind of expand on that, certainly with all of your studies. And Well, you know, it's interesting. I, <clears throat> I teach at Marquette University in the history department, and I work with young people. And I love working with young people. Yeah. But I've learned is you just can't talk. You just can't look somebody in the face and say, are you saved? It's just not yeah. they're going to walk right away. So what you have to do is what Jesuits have been doing now for many years is start from their own experience. So I asked them, I said, what is a society? And and so we talk, and we we agree that a society is a community of persons that have common values and common ways of of interacting and and explaining these values. And that saints, actually, sociologists identify saints as men and women who exemplify a society's values. Fascinating. So if you want to look at a society, a society is basically a system of a set of values and the means to implement those values. So whether you're the stamp club or the Catholic Church, you're going to have values and you're going to have means to implement those values. And within that community, within that society, you're going to have men and women who exemplify those values. So I'll tell you something, Joan. If you want to understand a society, look to its saints. Well, that's what I understand. You can, in, in exploring a saint, whatever age they lived in, you can learn about the clothing, the food, the economy <coughs> of that um, of that particular and, time and, and you place. And you can learn, most important, what they value. Yeah. And so saints, for example, so I'll say, who do you value? And let's look around Milwaukee, and what do we see? We see sports figures. There are saints. We see movie stars. There are saints. We see wealthy people. Those are society's saints. So what those saints tell us is about the values that a group of people want to embrace. And the Catholic Church says, you know, we have a different set of values. We are called to sanctity. And it's not that sanctity is beyond human nature, it's a part of human nature that we often deny. And that the human person is made by God to be with God in this life and to be with God eternally in the next. So it's our spiritual nature is not beyond our human nature, it's a part of our human nature. 
And the desire for sanctity, especially in the 21st century, so many popes, as you know, Joan, have called out for the call to sanctity. And the call to sanctity is to respect our human nature, which is both material and spiritual. And contemporary sanctity fights against that tremendous lie of the 19th century that states we are only material creatures, starting from Darwin to his cousin sure. Galton. And, and so many evils have come about because of that materialism, from eugenics to race. And so, to go back to our point, the call to sanctity and the understanding of sanctity comes uh, that brings us to really what it means to be fully human. Well, I think sometimes sanctity um, can scare us simply because we grew up knowing saints and it's like, oh, um, these amazing people and and some of them, you know, suffered torture. They were saints because they were martyrs. Um, and others just lived heroic virtues. They did things we don't think we can do. But if we really knew their lives, if we knew their they, lives. they were just like ours. But they just maybe did things a little more heroically. Well, you know, uh, we're all familiar, <clears throat> though it's hard to believe how 20-some years now Mother Teresa's been gone. And certainly Mother Teresa led a heroic life. But it's interesting, she never sort of told people, I want you to sell everything and go to Calcutta and help me work with dying lepers. Her great gift to sanctity is, what can you do at this moment to bring about the presence of God? And I'll never forget, I had the opportunity of meeting Mother Teresa uh, in the early 90s. She was at San Gregorio. And uh, she said something to me I'll never forget. Uh, you know, she asked me what I was doing, and I said, "Oh, you know, I'm uh, working on my PhD, and I'm in the archives, and sort of feeling kind of bad about not, you know, working in the streets." And she took my hand, I remember, and she said, "Good for you. The church needs smart people." Oh, how wonderful! And I, I just so Teresa. <laughs> I, I, I just sort of got goosebumps, even though I think about it. And she goes, "You work with young people in the United States," she said, "because many of them are the poorest of the poor because they don't know Jesus." Beautiful. And I thought, wow! But very much she and and she said to me, "We depend on you Jesuits to be smart and holy men." And that's sort of been my marching orders. Well, she was a smart and holy woman, so she, she take oh, her yes, words. Yeah, she was <clears throat> very, very both. Now, you know, one of the things as I was exploring the website and, and I was listening mm -hmm. um, to this um, EWTN program, they were talking about the fact that, and, and I think you and I may have even mentioned this briefly on our first meeting, the fact that in studying the lives of saints, there's um, a bit of legend I mean, mm -hmm. there's a lot of truth, but there's a bit of legend. But sometimes truth, or not sometimes, always truth is more powerful than legend. But how do researchers, how do you know how to separate what in the past we might have a legend says that Saint so-and-so did thus and such? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, and, it, and it refers, it helps us to make a difference in cultures. We can make a division 
a very general division between two types of cultures. Those cultures that share truth and extend truth by means of what we'll call orality, meaning telling stories, and those that put it in print. And so Western culture tends to be a print culture. And this change occurred around the Renaissance. And and, uh, this actually had an effect on our way of thinking because instead of having to memorize things and have the ability to tell a story, now we have a referent culture. And even now, uh, people are saying now with search engines and computers, we don't even have to know where to look. You just Google it, there it pops up. And so in the West, we have this print culture, but there were many cultures of people who could not read and write, who had to maintain a story. Passed it down from Passed it down by means of a story. So I'll give you a little course on form criticism here, that there is the way of telling the story and there is the truth of the story. And frequently, the way that stories are told have a similarity. And so what's different is what the kernel of truth is. So for example, uh, one of the great storytellers is Jesus. And he tells the story of the prodigal son. Now, can you imagine, um, let's pretend I'm Jesus. It's kind of a stretch, but, (laughs) and I'm telling the story. Once upon a time, there were two sons. And someone raises their hand and says, Jesus, uh, how tall was the first son? What color was his eyes? And Jesus would say, well, that's not important. That's yeah. not important. The, sto- the, the truth of the story is that God loves us very much, even though we do something wrong and we're brought back into the Father's love. So basically, the fundamental event of doing a research is, how do we look at these forms and we see similarities in forms And then when we look at that form, and then when we see something different, we can say, ah, maybe that's what we would call the the truth. So, So we would ask ourselves, is the story of the prodigal son true? Is it true or is it false? Well, even when I ask the students that, they'll say, well, it's a story with the moral. I said, but is it true or false? And and you can see they're kind of fidgeting because even they understand that there is the story and the truth behind the story. That's it for this week with Father Michael Maher. But come back next week for more on the riveting story of tracing the lives of saints. For more information on these stories or to check out Joan's blog and to ask her a question, go to EWTN.com. That's EWTN.com. Thanks for listening to Vatican Insider on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. EWTN, the Global Catholic Network.